Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. We're making our way through Revelation chapter 5, and as we draw near the end of the chapter, we encounter a group of 24 elders before the throne of God. Who are these elders and what is their role? We'll find out as Pastor Phil shares today's study. God hears and he's collecting those prayers. He intends to use them in some way to do his work. Well, verse 8 says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice, each having a harp. The each there is masculine in the Greek and can only refer to the 24 elders, which is also masculine in the Greek. It can't be, as some try to say, it can't be referring to and including the four living creatures because in the Greek they are in the neuter. So the each has to be speaking of the 24 elders. This is important Because it means that only the 24 elders sing the song of the redeemed in verse 9. Now I'm going somewhere with this, so hang in there. But in Revelation 5 verse 9, it it says, And they, who are we talking about? The elders, the 24 elders, sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, we need to stop here and clarify something. Most, if not all, of the newer translations at this point will have a footnote in the margin of your Bible that says something to the effect, the best manuscripts say, them, has redeemed them to God. Or the oldest manuscripts say them. And what that does is it makes the 24 elders a group that's not the redeemed. Well, then, who do these folks think they are? Well, the number one consensus among post-tribulationalists, those that believe the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period, believe the 24 elders are a special group of angels. We've already shown, we studied chapter 4, that's not really biblical. It's not really what's going on. But you see, you can't have the 24 elders represent the church because you can't have the church in heaven in chapter 5 if you're a post-tribulationalist or a mid-tribber or even a pre-wrath person. Because all of those positions have the church going into the tribulation period and then at some point, midpoint, pre-wrath, right before the wrath is poured out of God or at the very end, then the church is raptured. And the tribulation period doesn't start until chapter 6. So you cannot have the church in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. So you've got to make the 24 elders something other than representatives of the church. And we have tried to show you, we studied chapter 4, that the 24 elders, there's no other group they could be than, than the church. But when you read in the margins of your Bibles, 
the best manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts, the most trusted manuscripts, translate that them has redeemed them to God, let me say this, that is flat out dishonest and untrue. And the reason those things have been placed into the margin of your Bibles is because there are many scholars, I'm sorry to say, that are more concerned about being accepted by their intellectual peers than in taking a stand for truth. A stand that may get them ostracized from certain scholarly circles that they move in. Let me just tell you this, and I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, but I listen and read people who are. And some honest ones have said of the 5,500-plus Greek manuscripts, which are partial and complete copies of the New Testament, we only have 95 that contain the book of Revelation, fragments that really were pieced together to give us the book. Of the 95, only 24 of these manuscripts contain chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And of the 24, 23 read us. When we look at all the other ancient manuscripts that were translations of the Greek, the Latin Vulgate, the Coptic, the Syriac, all the other translations before the modern translations came down the pike, all of them, without exception, translates it us, not them, making the 24 elders the redeemed, okay, the church. I was listening to one of our Calvary pastors was talking about this and said he has a, a, a friend who was a Greek scholar who taught this when he taught Revelation. And he got a phone call one day from another professor uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary down in Texas. After introducing himself to this gentleman, the uh, professor from Dallas said to him, he said, uh, I was listening to your tapes on Revelation the other day, and in chapter 5 you said that the correct translation was us, and not them. He said, that's right. The professor from Dallas said, you know, a little, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. He said, how so? Well, he said, do you realize that of all the manuscripts we have in the New Testament, we only have 95 that contain the book of Revelation? He said, I know that. Do you further know that of those 95 manuscripts, only 23 say us? He says, I know that also. Well, then, if only one quarter of the manuscripts for Revelation have it translated us, why do you say that that is the correct translation? I mean, it's only a quarter of the manuscripts have us and not them. The gentleman says, well, Professor, can I say something to you? Certainly. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. <laughs> How so? Do you realize of the 95 manuscripts that we have of Revelation, only 24 contain chapter 5, verses 9 and 10? And of the 24, 23 say us. There's only one Greek manuscript on the face of the earth that translates to them. It is Codex Alexandrinus, Alexandria, Egypt. We all know that we don't trust too much that comes out of Egypt. We've already learned that in Scripture. Even the Codex Sedionicus translates it us. So it's just important that we understand that this is the song of the redeemed, right? And to further put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, on those who try to say it's them, do you realize that 
When John was given the book of Revelation by Jesus Christ, Jesus dictated it to John and, of course, took him to heaven, showed him things firsthand as they were unfolding on the earth and so on. Do you realize that the book of Revelation actually begins in chapter 1, verse 9? That's when the book technically begins. After John received the vision, wrote it all down, before he sent it, to the seven churches in Asia Minor, he writes a prologue. What is that? It's an introduction. The introduction came after John had been given this vision by Jesus Christ. So in the first eight verses, he writes a little prologue or introduction. In verses 5 and 6, he quotes chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And here's what he says in his prologue, written after the book was already given to him. He said in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You compare that to Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, it's the same idea, same thought. See, John clarifies for us what the correct translation is because he quotes it in his prologue and tells us he was taught it's the redeemed who are speaking. It's not a group of special angels. It's the church that is in heaven in chapters 4 and 5 before the tribulation period ever begins on the earth in chapter 6. Only the redeemed can say that out of every kindred, tongue, nation, and people, you have redeemed us by your blood. And by the way, the blood is a theme that we're going to be singing quite often in heaven. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He's a great guy. I love his commentaries on anything in the Bible. But he said, quoting this, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, quoting what we just read in Revelation 5. McGee said, they sing of his shed blood in heaven. Down here, many denominational churches are taking out of their hymn books all references to his blood, but in heaven they will be put back in the hymn book. I guess that may be the reason the Lord isn't going to embarrass some of those folks by taking them into heaven because they would have to sing about the blood there. Look, I don't know how any true child of God could be embarrassed about singing about the blood. It's the blood that washed us of our sins. Without the blood, none of us could be saved. And I I don't know, well, there are pulpits that have many people, as Paul said, they are presenting themselves, these pastors, as ministers of righteousness, but really they're working for the devil. Because anybody who tries to tell us that the blood is a barbaric topic and we need to remove all references to the blood and the cross out of our hymnals and so on. Well, to me, you're ashamed of the gospel. How could you be a true child of God if you're ashamed of the gospel? But he said in verse 10, not only has he redeemed us by his blood, but he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Well, as believers, the Bible tells us that we're going to reign with the Lord Jesus during the millennial kingdom. Of course, he's going to be the king of kings and lord of lords, reigning from Jerusalem over the whole earth. But we will be under him 
And the idea is that if we uh, as believers live uh, our lives for him faithfully, he'll reward us in part in the millennial kingdom by putting us in positions of authority throughout the earth in the kingdom age. And so as Jesus said to in uh, one parable of a, a faithful man who gave, he gave five talents to and uh, the master did and then the master went away and the faithful servant invested it wisely and worked hard and made five more. He said, uh, you know, that you have been faithful. Uh, I'll make you ruler over ten cities. Come and enter the joy of your Lord. And the idea is if we're faithful in, in using the gifts and the, and the things that God has given us now, well, God will reward us by giving us greater uh, opportunities to serve him in the kingdom age. But Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, that's the rapture. Over such the second death, the lake of fire, shall have no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we will reign with Jesus on the earth. Second Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And I think Paul is primarily talking about people in the church that claim to know him, that are Christians, and yet they deny him every day in the sense that they don't really live for him, they don't really, they, they, they misrepresent him because they're really not born again. And of course, they're playing games with the Lord and he knows their heart. Some days they're going to stand before him and he's going to say, I never knew you. He'll, he's going to deny them. But we are going to reign with him. Now, verse 11 John says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Well, look, save yourself some time. Don't try to multiply 10,000 times 10,000 and add a bunch of thousands to it and figure out how many angels there are in heaven. The Greek is literally myriads times myriads. And in the Greek, yes, a myriad does represent 10,000, but it's also the highest number uh, in the Greek language. And so it's often used to, to denote an innumerable number. And that's really what's going on here. I think that is John is so, has been so enthralled at the vision of God on the throne in heaven and the Lamb stepping forward to take the scroll. He's so fixated on God and His glory he doesn't really see what's going on around the throne, really. And all of a sudden, as the, as the, the son takes the scroll out of the father's hand, all of heaven breaks into the praise. And John kind of looks around and goes, whoa! As far as he can see in every direction, there are angels. And he's blown away. They're innumerable, all right? And he just, you know... Ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. Well, just an innumerable number of angels. Verse 12. The, all of these were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
you got to know that praise and worship is going to fill heaven for all eternity. But something special is going on here. There is an excitement that, that comes through even on the written page. There, There is something... All of heaven has kind of reached a crescendo there of anticipation. You say, well, what is it? Well, I like what Pastor John MacArthur said on this subject. He said, the spontaneous outburst of worship results from the realization that the long-anticipated defeat of sin, death, and Satan is about to be accomplished, and the Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth in triumph and establish His glorious millennial kingdom. The curse will be reversed, the believing remnant of Israel will be saved, and the church will be honored, exalted, and granted the privilege of reigning with Christ. All of the pent-up anticipation of millennia finally bursts out at the prospect of what is about to take place, end quote. I mean, the angels have been waiting for this moment for a long time. They were there when God laid the foundations of the earth, right? Job tells us the sons of God, angels, they shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. They were there when God created Adam and Eve, put them in a beautiful garden, gave them control of the earth. They also watched in horror as the devil took the form of a serpent, beguiled Eve, and she ate, gave to Adam, and he did eat. And suddenly man, made in the image of God, was fallen now, separated from God. And yet they watched as God made a promise to Adam and Eve that someday he was going to send a deliverer, a redeemer, a Messiah, who was going to crush the serpent's head and restore the world to what God originally intended it to be, a paradise where God and man could commune together in sweet fellowship forever. Well, it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? And as we come to Revelation chapter 5, these verses... The Lamb steps forward, takes the scroll out of the Father's right hand, and all of heaven breaks forth the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and billions upon billions of angels, all in one voice of praise, are just beside themselves with joyful anticipation about what's about to happen. As the Lord Jesus is going to begin to bring about the restoration of all things by first judging the rebels and then establishing his kingdom for those that belong to him. Well, we'll finish verses 13 and 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I don't know if this is poetic language. I don't know if it's just John's way of talking about all, kind of personifying the creation. I mean, Paul said in Romans 8, that the whole creation groans and travails together, you know, with labor pains until now. The, all of creation is eagerly waiting for the redemption to come. I mean, I, did the fish in the sea really start praising God? Literally, I don't know. I don't think so. But it's John's way of saying that all of creation has been waiting for this moment for a long time. That creation, which was subjected to vanity and sin and brokenness is going to be restored to the very thing God intended it for it to be. I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. The Bible says in Romans 14, I believe, and in Philippians 2, that... Someday, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father, correct? Now, here's the thing. There is coming a day when even the hardest, most rebellious sinner is going to be forced to approach the throne of God and bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess, You are Lord. The problem is, they won't be confessing that to salvation. They'll be confessing that to damnation. Because it's only those who, on the earth, who bow the knee to Jesus Christ and acknowledge His Lordship, that He is their Savior, and they receive Him as Lord to take control of their lives. Only they will do that. To sal- That's the bowing of the knee to salvation. If you wait till you die and step before the throne of God and bow the knee then and confess Jesus is Lord, it's too late. It's too late. And a lot of people, they refuse to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm convinced not all of them are hardened atheists who do not believe in God. The fool has said in his heart, what? Yeah, but the Hebrew says the fool has said in his heart, no, God. That's the literal translation. And by the way, he doesn't say in his head, he says it in his heart. It's not an intellectual issue. Most people know there's a God. I mean, God has revealed himself clearly in nature. The creation declares the glory of God. The problem is people don't want to acknowledge God's control over their life. They don't want to acknowledge him and give him the right which he has to rule over their life. So they say, no, God, no, I don't want God in my life. Not that they're saying there is no God. Some people believe that there is no God, of course. But they're saying, for the most part, fallen man, I think for the most part, is saying, no, God. I don't want God messing with my life. I don't want to bow the knee to God. I want to be my own master. I want to do my own thing. That's why they don't bow the knee to Christ. They want to be in control. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, folks. Where Adam and Eve had this beautiful setup, man. What a sweet setup. You know, living in a paradise, communing with God face to face, perfect bodies, no sickness, no death, nothing. Just didn't have to work, just kind of hung out in the garden and fellowship with God, just had a great time. And, and, and that wasn't good enough for them, all right? They thought they knew better than God what was best for their lives. And people do the same thing today. We can't blame Adam and Eve. People every day basically make the same decisions Adam and Eve made. They're going to want to take, they want to control their lives. God says, if you wait to the day you stand before Jesus in heaven to bow the knee and confess he is Lord, it's too late. Today is the day of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The idea is, though, you've got to confess him as Lord. He's got to be your Lord. There is no such thing as salvation apart from the fact that Jesus is Lord. Because if he's not Lord, it doesn't matter that you believe he's Savior and God. The devil believes that. But the devil isn't going to heaven, and neither are his demons who believe exactly that also. It's that lordship part that they're having a problem with. It's the committing their life to God in obedience. That's what the devil and his demons refuse to do. Yeah, knowledge is important. We have to have the knowledge of the truth to be saved. That's what the gospel is all about. But the gospel is not just about head knowledge. It's about bowing the knee to Jesus now and receiving him as Lord and Savior. And we do that. He comes inside, gives us new life. And we are part of the kingdom at that moment. 
We're not waiting to be a part of the kingdom. We are a part of the kingdom. We're just waiting for the kingdom to catch up to us. We're already citizens of the kingdom because the king rules in our hearts. And all heaven is going to be just that kind of thing, celebrating the king. You know, I'm so happy he's king. I'm so glad I'm not trying to be king of my life anymore. You know, I'm so glad, you know, he he does such a, so much better of a job than I ever did running my life. When I seek him, when I try to do things on my own again, I get burned. But it's all about giving him control every day, letting him lead, and bowing the knee to his lordship and acknowledging today, Lord Jesus, you are Lord. What will you have your servant to do? It's not about me trying to get you to jump to my tune. Lord, it's about me submitting to you. All of your Christian life, folks, if I can put it in a nutshell, is that very thing. Learning to give up control and giving Jesus control. That's what the Christian life in a nutshell is all about. Because that's the very thing we fight. That's what kept us from God for all the years before we got saved. And even now that we are saved, that's the thing that keeps the Holy Spirit from really doing all that He wants to do. We still fight the Lord to be in control. We have to surrender and bow the knee every day to His Lordship. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.